Thanks for joining us back on our special mini-series on opioids brought to you by the IFF Health and Safety Division. My name is Sarah Burns, and I'm a behavioral health specialist at the IFF. In this episode and the next, we are focusing on responding to opioid incidents. For this episode, I'm lucky to have a co-host, Thomas Breyer, the Director of Fire and EMS Operations at the IFF. Thomas, thanks for being here. Thank you. Today we have two guests. We're joined by Toby Frost from Lafayette, Indiana, Local 472, and Alan Van Heck from Bloomfield Township, Michigan, Local 3045. Toby and Alan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us, Sarah. Thank you. So to get us started, could you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to this work? Alan, let's start with you. Yeah, um, Sarah, I've... Uh... I've been a uh, firefighter paramedic for uh, about 25 years, and uh, I'm currently an instructor for Federal Resources, and uh, I'm a subject matter expert on uh, opioids, and uh, been all over the country uh, teaching uh, about uh, opioids and their uh, their hazards. I've been on quite a few overdoses, and uh, really, that's about it. Awesome. A lot of great experience that will inform our conversation today. Uh, Toby, how about you? So I'm a captain with Lafayette Fire Department in Indiana. I've uh, been on Lafayette for 17 years. Uh, while on Lafayette, I'm a member and a team leader for the hazardous materials team. And we started an illicit lab team back in the meth lab days. And that's how I kind of got into this realm, um, both as a medical first responder and as a hazmat team member responding to illicit labs. I'm also a trainer for Federal Resources, uh, where I'm a subject matter expert on the opioid epidemic. Great. Thanks again to you both for being here today. Let's jump into our, our next question. You've both been on the job a long time. What changes have you seen with opioids or other drugs over your careers? Um, I'll start. Um, so probably 20, 25 years ago, you would have your occasional heroin overdose. Um, there was a certain uh, certain way the person looked. You would look for track marks. Um, that would kind of be the dead giveaway that the person was on heroin. And uh, you know, you would go in, you would push a small amount of, of naloxone, and the person would wake up. They would projectile vomit, and they would start swinging at you, and you kind of knew what the run was. So about ten years ago. Uh, some things changed. And the biggest thing we noticed was that uh, the Narcan or the naloxone wasn't working quite as effectively as it used to. We would have to push one dose, two dose, three doses of naloxone. And uh, at the time, it seemed a little bit confusing. But now, as we know more about synthetic opioids, what we understand now is that uh, you know it's taking more naloxone to take these people out because the synthetic opioids are so much stronger. The other thing we, we notice a little bit different now is the route. Uh, back in the day with the heroin users, at least in the Michigan area, we always saw track marks. And now we're seeing people using these synthetic opioids all different ways, um, snorting it, uh, pill form, and, and then obviously injection. So things changed here with the introduction of synthetic opioids. And, and for us, some of the big changes were that, you know, we would go on a random overdose 
say, 10, 15 years ago. It certainly wasn't a daily occurrence. And now we seem to go on overdoses almost daily. And one of the big things that has changed is that um, when we get these in batches, a new batch of drugs will come to town and we'll have a rash of 10 or 12 overdoses in a short period of time because there's a new batch of drug that hit the street and people are overdosing because it's a hotter dose, if you will. There's more uh, active ingredient in it. And so we see these big rashes of overdoses when hot product hits the street where 10, 15 years ago when it was a more natural product, uh, the consistency was more standardized where now you're at the you're depending on the drug dealer on how they got that synthetic and how they cut it as to the potency of the dose. And it can change from day to day, from dose to dose. And the users just don't have any idea what they're actually using. So those overdoses are much more frequent and much more common than they used to be. You know, Toby, that's interesting you said that because back in the day when it was pretty much just heroin we were seeing, you, you wouldn't see more than one person ever. It would be one individual shooting heroin, and, and that was really it. I can think of one we had here recently where we responded to an apartment for a single overdose, and when we got there, by the time we left, there ended up being five people overdosed, all because they used that same uh, baggie of uh, what I would call hot product. Toby now, thank you for that uh, that exchange. That was that was incredibly helpful for our membership. But uh, I think we're going to transition just a, a little bit uh, into some of the things you guys were talking about regarding situational awareness, right? So all EMS practitioners know to have situational awareness on any scene. Uh, why is heightened situational awareness so important when opioids or other substances may be present? And what extra precautions should our members take? Well, one of the things to keep in mind is the way the body reacts is different. So historically, when people would come out of these overdoses, they might, as Alan said earlier, be sick. Uh, they come out kind of groggy. Now you can have them coming out just uh, straight up angry and hostile. Uh, one of the other problems you run into is very often they're not using by themselves. And so the people they are with uh, initially start out with a great deal of concern. And then as you start treating them, uh, start to be concerned for their buddy and you end up with hostile actions. Uh, you're going into a lot of different homes where, you know, traditionally you walk into a room, uh, you do a quick look around, everything looks good uh, and you start your care. But the problem you run into is as the scene changes, as people are given antidotes, they come out angry, you just waste their drug, or they don't know what's going on. They see law enforcement there, they see people in uniforms there, and they get very defensive very quickly and sometimes offensive. Uh, we've seen a number of cases across the United States where uh, medics or firefighters were assaulted as people came out. And you gotta check for weapons because as people come out, as they snap out of it, uh, if they have a weapon, that's going to be their go-to response, and you need to be aware of that. So that's really where it becomes key to start looking at uh, checking the your patient for a weapon or a needle. You know, there was the case in Boston where a medic was stabbed with a dirty needle. Uh, we still have all the bloodborne pathogens and everything else we need to worry about with that needle, even beyond the fact that it's being used as a weapon. Uh, we had a case where uh, a patient came out and shot the medic, there was a firearm that no one had checked the patient for. So all those dynamics are changing. Um, 
and you just have to be aware of that you really got to keep your head on a swivel and pay attention. You know, one of the things we talk about is uh, when you go into a home, you're trapped. If you're in a bedroom, uh, getting out quickly can be a problem. And so if you end up with uh, another person walking up on the scene while you're treating their buddy and they panic, they think you're doing harm or whatever the case may be, or they may not be in a good mental state, they may be in an altered mental state already, uh, you have to worry about somebody walking up behind you. So keeping somebody watching the door, protecting your egress, if you have to get out quickly, can you? Um, those are all challenges beyond maybe what we're used to dealing with, with the historic overdoses where you might find somebody uh, in a parking lot or an alley or somewhere out in the open. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, one of the things that scares me also, and this isn't just for the, the overdose call, it's just in EMS calls in general is every now and then somebody will pop out of a back room or pop out of a hallway or just somebody will pop in and you're like, whoa, where did you come from? And uh, I think, you know, at least in my department, I can say that the role of the officer isn't so much to get involved with the patient care, but just to kind of look around and be that extra set of eyes for the, uh, the firefighter paramedics to kind of keep an eye on what's going on in the scene. The other thing I like to do is, is get a little more control of the situation while the person may be unconscious. Let's, um, let's, let's check them out. Let's see, do they have a knife on them? Do they have a gun on them? Do they have needles on them? Um, let, let's take care of this while the person's unconscious because Lord knows we don't know what's going to happen when this person uh, begins to wake up. And, and, you know, this is all very uh, time critical right now. We look across the country right now, and traditionally, as firefighters, we have always been the good guy, never really had to worry about people assaulting us, arguing with us, attacking us, and uh, that's not quite the case anymore. We're seeing lots of cases uh, across the country where uh, we are being attacked, uh, we're, we're being assaulted, and so that dynamic has changed just in the last couple of years where traditionally our brothers and sisters across the country didn't have to worry about that. And the reality is, and we've seen some very timely cases of that in the last week or so where firefighters are being attacked trying to do their job. And so you add that to the whole nasty mix of uh, illicit substances and it just becomes a very volatile situation you need to keep your eye on. Awesome. The IFF has always been really concerned about the health and safety of our of our membership. Um, and I know that hazards to our members differ based on the type of scene they come across. And we'll get to that in a minute. But what are some of the safety considerations regarding opioids that cut across all of the different types of scenes they might encounter? So I think that um, number one is the unpredictability of, of a, uh, an overdose scene or an opioid scene is, is you really don't know what's going to happen next. So if you don't pre-plan out the incident or at least prepare for the worst, you may find yourself uh, you know, behind the eight ball if something happens. I think the other thing with uh, the opioid response is is the fact of is there open powder is there uh, uh open uh liquid is there uh pills nearby and we're really really concerned about uh the respiratory tract and the breathing zone of our firefighter paramedics um 
we, uh, you know, there's been a lot of misnomers out there about opioids hurting you just from getting on your skin. And we now know that that's false. But on the scenes where there's an open powder, we really have to take into consideration our respiratory protection. And we also, one of the things that I like to do on runs is if, uh, if there's some sort of something that makes me feel just not right, I will tell them, let's remove the patient from the scene. Let's get them into the back of the ambulance. Let's get out of that environment that, that to me is unpredictable. And let's get them in somewhere that I think is more safe and secure. And, uh, you know, I really do that for the safety of, uh, of my members. And one of the other challenges we have is, again, I'll go back to the difference between synthetic drugs and traditional drugs, is that, quite honestly, you have no idea what they really take. We, we, use, we say fentanyl all the time, but the reality is we don't really know what synthetic they, they've taken. Somebody in the drug chain ordered a synthetic chemical from overseas, most likely, mixed it, cut it, and distributed it on the street. When we talk about the fentanyl family and specifically, um, you know, there's over 2,000 different analogs or potential analogs for fentanyl. So you don't even necessarily know which one they took. And then you get this whole other family of synthetic opioids or related products like W18 and, and things like that, uh, pink with U47700, uh, some of these different chemicals out there that have opioid-like responses. But the problem is when you come out of unconsciousness, uh, depending on what that product was, you're going to have a very different reaction. Uh, you know, the traditional coming out nice and mellow or getting sick. Now we have people coming out amped up, hostile, scared, uh, confused, all those different things. So predicting how your patient's going to react is virtually impossible. You just don't know. And so you have to be prepared for somebody who comes out confused, hostile, altered mental status. They don't really know what's going on because everyone's going to have a different reaction based on what that synthetic product was. And there's so many out there that we just have to be aware that um, they're all going to react differently, potentially. Thanks for that background on safety considerations that might cut across all scenes where drugs might be present. Um, let's get a little more specific. What about the safety considerations or situational awareness tips that are specific to certain types of scenes, like in a vehicle, inside a house, or in a public area like a park? So here's something that, uh, that, that really scares me, is we have seen a huge uptick in uh, vehicle accidents because it, the opioid user doesn't want to wait to get home to uh, to take their opioids. So what we've been seeing is we've got uh, individuals, they score their drugs and they go ahead and take their drugs before they get home. So now what they're doing is they're driving home and they're under the influence of these drugs and, and they're hitting, you know, we've had them hit a tree, hit a building, hit, uh, hit a pedestrian, hit other people head on. And uh, that really scares me because for us, we don't know that it's an opioid response unless we happen to, to you know, to see it in the car or in, unless we, uh, you know, somebody picks up that, hey, this, this is something more than a car accident. It scares me from a couple standpoints. It scares me from being an individual that works on traffic accident scenes, uh, you know, on regular car accidents that there's these, uh, these drivers out there that are uh, under the influence. It scares me from somebody that responds in a fire truck that there's individuals that, you know, 
should be stopping for us that maybe aren't because they're under the influence. And, um, you know, it, it actually scares me as a parent having a couple of uh, young high school drivers. It scares me that we have these individuals out there that are driving under the influence. You know, when you, when you compare a, a, a vehicle scene to a scene at a residence, a scene at a hotel, a scene on a park bench, there's always that unpredictable, um, you know, what's going to happen next. Um, and, and really, it's, it's, it's everybody's job to kind of state out the little things that they see that may become an issue when this person becomes conscious again. Is there somebody in the closet? Is there somebody in the bathroom? Um, you know, what's underneath their car seat? If I reach across this patient to, uh, to do something and they come to and I'm right in their face, uh, that, is, that is not a very good situation to be in. I'm uh, susceptible to injury at that point. And then, you know, are they going to put their foot down on the gas? Is the car still on? Um, you know, where are the car keys? Are they going to be able to turn the car on? Those are all things that, that you know, as, a, uh, as an older firefighter paramedic that scare me, that, uh, you know, we just got to teach the younger individuals and uh, not get complacent. I think that's the key. So um, one of the problems with even beyond the bagged actors or confused individuals, um, we all as EMTs or first responders uh, have had drilled into us from day one, BSI scene safe, and it almost becomes a blind uh, response, BSI scene safe, BSI scene safe. But you've got to think about all the other things. Like Alan said, on a traditional car wreck, you show up, you have a, a car wreck, damage to the vehicle, you have a patient unconscious or not breathing, and the response is to get them out of the vehicle as quickly as you can to start uh, CPR or breathing for them. But you've got to slow down just a little bit. You can have sharps, you can have chemical hazards. Um, we have responded to a number, number of car wrecks where literally the needle is still in the, the individual's arm where they shot up while they were driving and just took their foot off the brake and just kind of rolled across an intersection and hit a planter or hit a tree. And when you open up the door, that needle is right there still in their arm. So we have to be aware of things like sharps or uh, loose product floating around or things of that nature. Um, you just got to slow down a little bit and, and rethink what that BSI scene safe really means. Uh, just slow down, assess the situation, make sure you don't have those sharps just takes a second, but nobody wants to get a dirty uh, needle stuck in their arm or a puncture wound or something like that. So those are things we got to think about that maybe traditionally with a car wreck, uh, we are more worried about vehicle or mechanism, uh, less so much with what might be in the car when we start caring for our patient. I think everything you said is, is so important for our membership uh, that when, you, when you've done a job for so long, sometimes you get complacent. Uh, and you're not considering all the factors or noticing the things that maybe you noticed when you were really early on in your career or the first time you went on one of these runs. Uh, Thomas, what would you like to comment on from what they've said so far? Thank you, Sarah. I think uh, both of you have made some very excellent points here, but one thing I'd like to revisit is some of our discussion that's focused specifically on uh, scene safety especially in regards to resuscitating overdose patients who may become combative or that you may have people on the scene who are going to you know, be part of uh, that combat with that patient or may just provide interference. Would you say that this highlights the need for adequate crew sizes uh, to respond to 
opioid overdoses beyond just sending an ambulance or maybe just a supervisor car? And what would you uh, what it what would you offer to people as advice who think that this is just a single ambulance response issue? Well, I, you bring up a great point. And when we think about crew size, traditionally in an ambulance or a rescue, you know, you've got two people handling patient care. If you have a full code, maybe you have three people on an engine and everybody's got their hands full. You're doing compressions, respirations, uh, getting the AED and stuff set up and treatment, all that kind of thing. Uh, you really need to consider having that person who is dedicated to scene safety, who is watching the door, watching the background. Uh, you know, we, we've really started to emphasize that somebody keep an eye on what's going on. And an interesting side point of this is we've started training a lot on de-escalation tactics. Uh, when you have that hostile uh, loved one or buddy or whatever that's come to the door and is upset about what are you doing to their friend, trying to use some de-escalation tactics that are traditionally law enforcement tactics, but kind of a different way of looking at it. So I think we really need to reevaluate what's a crew size. Um, as you said, it is two enough. I, I personally don't think so, especially when you're running into these types of situations. Having someone that can uh, watch what's going on, look for changes, uh, tell the crew that maybe it's time to bail out, uh, get out. Um, just like we do in a fire scene, uh, you know, we've always got that backup, somebody who's protecting our egress. Uh, we need to think about how to get back out of, especially the houses, um, warehouses, buildings that we're going into, um, all those kinds of things where our, we're not in the traditional park or outside or in an alley where you could easily be trapped. Yeah, if there's one thing I've learned in my years as a, uh, as, as a firefighter, it's what you get dispatched out to is not necessarily always the call you arrive to. And I would say it's probably closer to 50% of, you know, it comes in as one event, but when you get there, you realize it's a completely different type of event. Uh, I'm lucky enough, you know, in our department where, you know, you're going to get four on a medical every single day. And uh, let's face it, sometimes that's not even enough. So uh, we start to, we, we try to respond with four individuals to, uh, to every response. And if you get there and you realize, hey, this is a nothing call, you know, calling somebody off just because you need two people is fine. But you got to get, you know, I would say a minimum of four individuals on the way to that call until you really figure out what it is. Some of the information we receive on these calls, you know, it, it's not very good information. Uh, you have lay people trying to tell you what an event is. And uh, let's face it, unfortunately, a lot of times they don't truly understand exactly what's going on. We've responded on drug overdose, overdoses before that, that end up not being drug overdoses. They end up being a diabetic or, you know, an, an alcohol-related incident. So, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that four is the minimum that should respond on one of these calls. And if it ends up being not as urgent as we think, then you can cancel the, uh, the other units. While we're talking about precautions departments can take to reduce the chance of violence against our members, I want to put in a plug here for some work done by Dr. Jennifer Taylor at the Center for Firefighter Injury Research and Safety Trends at Drexel University. She's created a checklist to look at this issue from a larger perspective. It's not just the responsibility of the individual member or officer on scene, to keep members safe in potentially violent situations. 
It's really a responsibility that needs to be undertaken by department leadership. Dr. Taylor and colleagues created the SAVER systems level checklist. It's organized by the six phases of EMS response from pre-event, traveling to the scene, arriving at the scene through patient care, assessing readiness to return to service and beyond. These items are focused on actions that leadership can institute through training, policy, and environmental modifications to shift the onus of safety and health from the individual first responder to the larger organization. Dr. Taylor and two of our members who were assaulted during their work as paramedics presented at the IFF's 2019 Redmond Health and Safety Symposium. They shared their own stories of being assaulted and Dr. Taylor talked about the SAVER systems checklist. You can find a recording of that presentation on the IFF's YouTube channel titled Paramedic Assault. Thomas, what's next? As we grow into a more cautious world, uh, PPE may become scarce at times. And you know this may lead some of our members or uh, fire department administrative leadership to believe that certain levels of personal protection equipment should be isolated to uh, EMS runs with a, with a um, an infectious disease process that's possible. What message do you have for people who were who are considering reserving PPE just for infectious disease response? One of the challenges is when you're responding to a call for help, nine one one call. Uh, you you honestly don't really know what you're running into. Dispatch does the best job they can getting the information, but they're relying on that caller. And what we've seen very recently with the COVID is people who are afraid you won't come will lie about their signs and symptoms. You know, we're all familiar with the frequent flyers, if you will, that know the keywords to get transported and it may or not may or may not be a medical can, it, true issue, uh, but they know the magic words, difficulty breathing, chest pain, things like that. The reality is we have the other side of that fence, too, where people are not going to admit to uh, international travel in the last few days or they're not going to admit to a fever because they're afraid you won't come. And so what you think may be an overdose or what you may think is a infectious disease call could be just the opposite. And so to just segregate that, hey, unless somebody has, for example, the COVID key symptoms, we're not sending you with PPE, you could easily be walking into a situation where it's just the opposite and you get in trouble. There's a lot of things out there besides opioids and COVID. You know, we go back to the good old days of somebody having TB and you needing to have an N95 respirator. And so when it comes to scene size up, you can do a little bit of screening, but the reality is until you're on scene, you just truly don't know what you're walking into. And we have to have that PPE available to assess what those needs may be. Yes. So I'll give you um, right, my two cents on, on PPE. Um, the PPE is only as good as, as its availability. And uh, the individuals uh, who are wearing it understanding why they're wearing that PPE. So um, if you don't have the right PPE, the right PPE to, uh, to, to do a job, then we're gonna have some, some major issues here with uh, individuals getting exposed, getting injured on the job. Um, you know, if there's not the right PPE for an incident, 
then you need to figure out, can I do a snatch and grab on this individual? Can I grab this person and take them out of that dangerous environment safely and get them into a safer environment? So um, I guess in a nutshell, um, PPE is there to protect your individuals from all situations, not just infectious diseases, um, not just, you know, fires, not just hazmat calls. You need to, we really need to make sure that we're training our individuals to understand what PPE is needed for what situation, how do I put it on appropriately? And if for some reason I don't have the correct PPE, how can I do my job safely without getting anybody injured? That's a great point, Alan. You know, it goes back to, I hate to use this because it's a hazmat term, but it goes back to risk-based assessment. Um, what are my actual risks? There's a tendency to go to the maximum level of PPE. And if the scene doesn't really dictate that, you know, you got to pick your PPE based on the scene at hand and what your actual risks are. Um, there is no perfect PPE for every situation. Uh, so picking it appropriately based on the risks you see and the hazards that are presented uh, becomes something that you have to be able to do on scene. And if you don't have those choices available, that you know, Toby, you and I have both taught, you know, for federal resources here for a while. And one of the things that I can remember taking one of my first hazmat IQ courses was, you know, what is the highest level protective gear? And everybody would always yell out level A. Well, it might be, but you have to understand the hazard. If you're involved with a, uh, you know, a, a shootout, level A is not your, your highest level PPE, a bulletproof vest would be. So it's understanding the hazard and understanding the correct PPE for that hazard. Uh, that's what's going to keep our personnel safe. I really appreciate the comments about how the current COVID global pandemic might affect fire department responses uh, to other types of calls. I think oftentimes we think about these issues in isolation. You know, we're just talking about opioids or we're just talking about uh, you know, a structure fire. But I think the intersection between all of these different types of incidents our members encounter on a day-to-day -day basis is really important. I agree, Sarah. And uh, Alan and Toby, your comments are, are well-received. And let's uh, change direction here a little bit and talk about naloxone. Most of our members are probably familiar with naloxone delivery, but tell us about the finer points, especially in regards to synthetic opioids. Well, there's, there's several things to keep in mind. Um, a, naloxone will only work on an opioid. So if someone has taken something else, it's not going to work on that. Uh, you know, that was a myth that was flying around that there are Narcan or naloxone resistant uh, opioids out there. And there's no such thing. The way it works is an opioid binds with that receptor. The naloxone binds better and knocks the opioid off and prohibits that. But the reality is if you take too much, uh, it's like a, a dam breaking, you know, putting in a dike in the dam isn't going to stop it when the dam starts to fail and you have all that water coming at you. If you have an enormous amount of opioids on your system, uh, then naloxone is going to have a hard time overcoming that. If they've taken something else, it's not going to work. And one of the things that people need to keep in mind is that there's only a limit to how much you can give nasally before your nasal membranes can no longer absorb it. So when you start giving 
four, five, six doses, uh, the reality is it's just running down the back of their throat. Uh, so you've got to look at if, if you've identified it as an opioid overdose and the nasal isn't working, you need to look at some ALS care where you start doing it by other means of delivery because nasally just you're just wasting the product. It's not getting in their body and it's not helping them at that point. Another thing to consider is don't give it all to them. You know, we we're talking a lot about scene safety and a lot about protecting yourself. I don't have to bring that person back to consciousness. If I can get them to breathe, I'm done. Transport them, let them give it to them by drip in, an organ, in, a, in a measured slow method that will bring them back slowly and we don't have to worry about the hostility and all the other things that come along with that. If they're breathing, I'm golden. Transport them and I'm not fighting the patient the whole way or EMS is not fighting the patient the whole way. I know that's a challenge. We run into situations where by the time we're on scene, it's already been administered multiple times. You also have to give it a chance to work. And so when we look at giving it nasally, um, you're looking at a three minute time before you get peak dose in their blood. So it's not like when you give it by IV and they pop up instantly. Uh, so when you're giving it by nasal, uh, give it a chance to work. It's up to three minutes for peak dose in their blood. Give it time to work. I know three minutes on a scene when someone's not breathing seems like forever. Uh, but we can breathe for them. We can provide rescue breathing. We can use Ambu bags and things like that to bridge that gap, but give the medicine a chance to work before you start pushing more and more and more. Because a lot of times you've just given them way too much and uh, you just didn't give it a time to become effective. Yeah, on the opposite end of, uh, of what Toby talked about, we have to remember that naloxone isn't a, a permanent thing. When you give somebody naloxone, it's not in their system forever. In about an hour, it's gonna start wearing off. And uh, when the naloxone starts leaving those narcotic receptors, if there's still that strong synthetic opioid in their body, that synthetic opioid is gonna start clinging back to those narcotic receptors and they're gonna actually start re-overdosing. And uh, you know, talking about the, the, the heroin use back in the day, I never saw that with heroin. With heroin, it was, I don't want to use the word mild, but it wasn't as strong as these semi-synthetic. And when you gave them Narcan, it popped them out. They were all good. But these semi-synthetics or synthetics are so strong that it's still in their system. When that naloxone wears off, you're going to have people re-overdosing. Back in the day, somebody would overdose. We would uh, naloxone them, and we would literally sign them off, and they would go home. Or, or maybe somewhere else. And uh, nowadays you can't do that. You can't just sign people off because there is a good chance they're going to re-overdose. One more thing on naloxone is if you're ever working a scene where there's a large amount of synthetic opioids, for example, a hazmat scene, uh, you know, maybe a lab or large amounts of the powder, make sure you have naloxone on standby for the responders. Don't use up all your naloxone on the overdose victim when we've got several people that run the risk of overdosing also. And, uh, you know, we don't want them to, uh, you know, become in danger and then us not have any naloxone on us. On a second note, if you ever don't have naloxone, um, you know, on the scene, remember that we can breathe for individuals until we can get some naloxone. That's how we're able to have surgery 
and, and, and not pass away. They breathe for us during surgery. And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't pass away because they're breathing for us. Um, if you don't have Narcan on, on scene, you can always just breathe for somebody, but try to make sure you have enough there for the first responders in case they get, uh, get involved. You know, Alan, you had a great point about the fact of the half-life with naloxone. One of the things to keep in mind when you're doing your scene size up and your patient assessment was what was the route of entry? When we look at, I mentioned the peak dose in your blood takes up to three minutes if you're given it nasally. By the same token, if you have somebody who overdosed on pills, for example, and their, their friend says, hey, he took a handful of pills and then he passed out. Um, when you take it orally, it could take up to two hours for that peak dose to get in your blood. And so right about the time the naloxone wears off, you're hitting peak dose and there's an enormous amount of opioid in their system. So how they took the drug is going to have a great impact on how long before they get to that peak dose in their blood serum. And so you've got to keep that in mind. Um, in our jurisdiction, it used to be if we gave them naloxone and they were good, we just left and got a refusal. And now they're really pushing for them to go to the hospital because you don't know how much they have on their system. And you could be back in 20 minutes or an hour because all that opioid was still in their blood and now the naloxone has worn off. Sorry. I like to use the analogy that it's kind of like a diabetic. We give them D50 and they pop right back up. But we all know that that sugar is going to wear off if they don't get some more in their blood system. And so it's a temporary fix. And granted, it's a very different mechanism, but the same thing kind of holds true, that you've given a temporary fix, not a solution. And so you need to keep in mind what's going to happen in the next 20 minutes, the next hour, with all that still on their body, potentially. You've given us a lot to consider here uh, about what happens during a run and some of the, the points to consider with naloxone delivery. Uh, let's, let's shift in time a little bit to the end of the run or you know, doffing the PPE and returning back to the, the station. Uh, and what I'm really interested in is the potential for contamination. We've talked so much about contamination with other issues like cancer, uh, but tell us about the potential for this uh, and what to do to prevent it for synthetic opioids. So the biggest thing I would say in regards to uh, not dragging an opioid back to the station or to the, uh, the truck is just that situational awareness of noticing where is, it, number one, is there a, a, a powder? And we're always concerned about powders. Powders seem to, to travel a little bit better. Um, but is there a powder nearby? Is there a powder on the patient? Um, you know, I, I can think of incidents where you get there and you know the route they use the drug because, you know, they have, you know, an, an orange liquid coming out of their nose. So, so we're pretty sure they, they snorted an orange pill. And sure enough, later on, you find orange pills. Um, anytime you see a product that you believe is a synthetic opioid, it, we need to have that hands-off type mentality and um, we need to stay away from it. And unfortunately, sometimes if, if you get a little tunnel vision, you don't notice the obvious. You may kneel down in an area that has a powder. If that's the case, we need to make sure that we do a, uh, a good decon on that individual and make sure that that doesn't get drugged back to the, the truck, to the station, to your own personal uh, vehicle, to 
to your own personal residence. Um, so I would just say situational awareness, keeping your eyes open, understanding, um, you know, what the, uh, the situation is and, and is there any powder. The other thing is, you know, if you have a patient that, that vomits or, or stuff's coming out of their body, you know, once again, if it's liquid and it's your, not yours, don't go buy it. Um, uh, really, that's it for me. So one of the challenges is we're kind of giving you a 10-minute snapshot of an all-day program that we do with Federal Resources, the Drug IQ program. And so we have different levels of risk. And when we're looking at what we like to call the none and small response, um, those are your everyday calls, your overdose calls. If you have stumbled into what you think is a lab situation or a uh, distribution situation, you have basically overstepped your level of PPE and you the resources that you need on hand. Um, if you accidentally get this on your skin, wash it off. Uh, that's what we're, you wear gloves for body system isolation. We don't want bloodborne pathogens. We don't want all that other stuff on us. The gloves will protect you from that accidental contact. Just use careful technique, remove them just like we would for any other call. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you think you got it on your skin, wash it off with soap and water. Uh, we're all using hand sanitizer and copious amounts currently, but if you're on an overdose, that's the wrong choice. If you add hand sanitizer to a synthetic opioid, you can take a product that does not absorb through the skin very easily and make it absorb through the skin at a higher rate. And so on an overdose, you need to think about plain soap and water, nothing exotic. Uh, wash it off with soap and water. If you don't have soap and water handy, uh, if you don't have, like for example, fire wipes, if you have the, the non-alcohol fire wipes, wipe it off real quick. Great product, soap and water, great product. Uh, in a pinch, use plain old bottle of water. Uh, we've started carrying a bottle of water uh, for each of my guys on the truck so that if we get something in our face or eyes or whatever, we can do a quick rinse off. If you get it on your hands, rinse it off with water. As soon as you get back to the station, soap and water. Uh, if you're concerned about hand sanitizer, wash your hands first before you use that hand sanitizer. Um, when we get beyond that, when we start talking about decon and stuff like that, uh, that really falls into kind of that eight-hour program. There's a lot more to it, recognizing those signs and symptoms. But basically, at the end of the day, just like you would for a bloodborne pathogen, you want the same level of protection. Uh, just like we've been talking about COVID, uh, you want the same type of, of precautions. Don't touch your eyes, nose, or mouth. Wash with soap and water. Uh, if you get it in your eyes, they absorb 80 times faster than your skin. Uh, our hands is some of the areas that absorb the slowest of our entire body. And so if we can clean our hands off, we're in a pretty good spot. Your face absorbs faster. If you get it in your mouth or your nose, you're risking inhalation, which gets it into your body almost immediately. So slow down. Soap and water is what you need to do. Remove your gloves just like you would for the bloodborne uh, pathogen and keep it away from your face. And that's, that's really the key at this none and small level. When we start talking about stumbling into labs or distribution where you've got powder all over the ground 
or you've got signs of a pill press lab or something like that, uh, that's really where that next level of training comes in uh, through the Drug IQ program or your illicit lab teams and things of that nature. You know, I think that makes a lot of sense. We can't hope to cover everything that somebody would need to know during one short podcast episode. And like you mentioned, there are, you know, full day, multi-day courses out there uh, to really bring people up to a level of proficiency in this area. Um, So what haven't we covered so far in this conversation that you think is important to cover? Uh, Toby, let's start with you. So I think one of the important things to keep in mind is situational awareness, keeping your head on a swivel, watching each other's back, watch for changing dynamics, watching for people who are are posturing, um, who are showing all those symptoms of aggression, slow down, protect ourselves, watch each other's back, uh, and then things that we don't traditionally think about. Uh, When we say seen safe, that doesn't just mean Um, Do I have an active shooter? Think about things like a weapon on our patient, a weapon within grasp of our patient, a needle, all those kinds of things that might uh, be used to hurt us. So just keep your head on a swivel and and really think about that scene size up and that scene safety. We're all so used to BSI scene safe, but it's more critical now than it ever has been in the past. Yeah, Toby, when I think of the, uh, the overdose response, and, and just a general thought about it, it scares me a little bit to think that uh, it's changing. The whole drug world is changing. We know that drugs are going from, from a natural product to a synthetic product. And we go around the country teaching this, and there's a lot of places where we go and teach where individuals say, yeah, you know, the synthetics aren't hitting our area yet. It's, uh, it, it, you know, we're, we still have old school heroin. And, uh, what they don't understand is, is they really don't. They may think they do. And I know we get dispatched out to, to heroin overdoses, but, but it's not heroin. It, it is a synthetic opioid. And if it took you more than one Narcan to get somebody back, I guarantee you it's a synthetic opioid of, uh, of one sort. And the other thing, the syntho- synthetic opioid world is changing. There are new opioids being introduced all the time and as law enforcement and other individuals, you know, uh, start to, to figure out how to detect different uh, opioids, they're coming up with new opioids and new delivery routes and, and new ways. So, so this is just an ever-changing world um, when it comes to the drug world. And I think the next 10 years, you're going to see a ton of changes. And I think our ability to adapt to what those changes are is going to be huge for keeping our members safe. Um, you know, the, there's just a lot of unknown out there. And uh, once again, it's just an ever-changing world that we need to stay on top of in order to keep people safe. Alan, Toby, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us for this conversation today. Um, we always need to be doing more to ensure that our members stay safe. Uh, Thomas, why don't you give us the final wrap-up? Yeah, I'd like to just echo uh, Sarah's thanks and acknowledge that uh, all the information you've shared is is very important to, for the members to hear, especially uh, that there's so much myth- mythology rather around uh, the new synthetic opioids, especially fentanyl. Uh, and so this was all very good information to hear. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Sarah, for having us. Thank you, Sarah, Thomas, and uh, be safe. 
Thank you guys. To access the other videos and podcasts in this series, visit opioidepidemic.iff.org. Content was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy under award number UH4ES009759. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy.